Friends, would you uh, open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, page 1023 in your, uh, the Bibles that we've provided for you. So this is already the end of our 1 John series, and I'm kind of mourning it already, because uh, it's been good for my soul. Um, so uh, next week we move into Advent. Uh, preparing our hearts for uh, uh, the birth of Christ. And uh, so, but let's wrap up this week. Um, how many of you remember the good old show, MacGyver? Oh, yeah. There was Matt going, yeah. He's like a hero, right? Yeah. So MacGyver had one tool especially that he was known for using. What was that, that one tool? One, two, Donna, why don't you throw it up? Duct tape. I mean, duct tape could fix anything, right? It was, it was the tool that if he just had duct tape, a pocket knife, um, it was probably a, a paper clip, anything, like, anything that he could find in his pocket on the floor, but especially duct tape, he could save the world. MacGyver was this amazing guy. But I'm going to tell you, it's probably not the best means for creating some kind of transportation it's not a prime choice just as this Alaskan man found out uh, who last year he attempted to cross a channel near uh, in there in Alaska in a homemade watercraft more specifically it was an inflatable duct taped watercraft duct taped uh, it was complete with a paddle, a dog, and uh, even there was conspicuously missing a life vest in his inflatable duct tape boat. A, new, a local newscraft uh, stated that while the, the weather on the scene was reportedly a, a calm nine miles an hour, a local a Coast Guard crew uh, ended up coming to this man's aid and when uh, and decided to rescue him when this makeshift boat started to fill up with water. Uh, it was de- they deemed the craft to be unsafe and they transferred the man and his dog to the nearby, nearby uh, Douglas Harbor. This man's boat, if you will, was homemade. It was patched together with duct tape and it was carrying no life vest at all on board. Yet, what did he do? He trusted this makeshift boat with his whole life. Insanity, right? Or sheer desperation. And as we come to the end of 1 John, is there anything that you and I can really rely on that will get us to the other side safely and securely? According to John, the answer is absolutely. There is something that we can rely on. We can have assurance of eternal life now, right now, and we can know what's true. We can know what gives us the assurance that we need for for life with God when it is absolutely hard. We do not have to have a duct tape kind of faith. We can have a sure, steady faith. 
So friends, let's, let's read 1 John chapter 5 together. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read it verse 1 through verse 21. So if you're unable to stand, I understand. But stand for the reading, if possible, for God's Word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know... That we have the love, have the, have love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there, is, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these are... Three, agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne considering, concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe that God has made himself, has, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God, has, God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole earth lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. So we've been looking at the letter of 1 John, written by Jesus' closest friend, 
And he was writing it to the church in Ephesus. Very good. And at this church in Ephesus had gone through quite a crisis. They were going through this time of crisis and some had left the church. And, and now John is, is writing to do some major damage control. His words, too, were important because the people in the church were, were really hurting from what, what had happened within their church. They had questions. And so John was writing not only to deal with the, this crisis, but to use this crisis as a recalibration tool for what matters most. Would you say that that is true for even your own life? When you go through a crisis, is it a recalibration tool to say, what really matters? When you experience a loss, when you experience relational disconnect, when you experience some kind of financial or physical or emotional pain, it's often an opportunity for you to say, okay, it's all falling apart. What really matters here? I can't control these things, but what is the one thing I can rely on? I know for myself, it is in times of crisis where I can focus on what really matters. If there's anything good about a crisis, it reminds us what matters most. What is really, at the end of the day, The most important thing, a crisis can serve as our recalibration tool, as a way to remind you and me, the church, what matters. And and that's what we're going to see in our final sermon in 1 John. As we close up this book, it's, 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 it's a little hard to relate to everything that might be going on in the circumstances that John is addressing. We haven't really in the past year or so, dealt with any kind of major crisis as a church. But because, just because we are not in crisis, it doesn't mean that we should be deaf or blind. It's critical that we do not miss what John is saying. We shouldn't be waiting for a crisis to recalibrate, Right? Every day should be a moment to say, what matters? What matters the most in my life? So why not use what John is saying and to make sure that we as a church, as as individuals, as families, are really focused on the most important thing instead of waiting for a crisis. And because we, we, we do want to get to the other side safely and securely, We don't want to wait and create a boat that is made out of duct tape. We need assurance that we can live for God now and when it's hard. So John's going to help us. And as we come to the end of this letter, it's important for us to really review where we've been. According to John, real faith involves three things, right? He said, the most, start off with believing, obeying, and loving. If you have genuine faith, these three things are going to be true in your life. You will believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the Messiah. He was the promised deliverer. The Son of God has come as a man to save us from the wrath of God, to save us from the sins that we commit on a daily 
minute-by-minute basis. But not only that, if we believe that Jesus Christ is truly our Messiah, our Savior, we will obey Him. Not perfectly, because none of us, none of us are perfect, but our life will be characterized by a growing love for and obedience for God's commands. As I look at you now, you will be different next week, next month, next year. Because there will be a growing love and desire for obedience to God's commands. But not only that, not just believing, not just obeying, but the last characteristic that we talked about last week was we will love other believers just as God has loved us. There should be something warm and inviting and beautiful and extremely vibrant about this community of faith. A sign of a genuine church, therefore, it's three things. Correct doctrine. And we should talk about doctrine in the church. We should also see obedience. And we should see loving relationships between people. And that's what we want to build here as a church. We want to pay careful attention to what we believe. We want to have precision, precision about what we teach. We want, to pay, we want to also obey all that God has commanded. Even the Great Commission says, teach them to Obey all that I have commanded you. And we want to genuinely love each other. That's the end game. The problem, though, is that leaves us kind of up in the air. And I've had in some conversations, some of you go, man, at the end of this, I'm not sure if these are all the tests and that these are really a sign of whether you are in Christ or not in Christ. Man, I am not sure if I'm really hitting it. I'm not even sure maybe I'm a true believer. So as we close out, John anticipates those questions. He comes to the end and says, listen, I'm going to give you Five things, at least, that you can be sure of. And I want to reassure you of these things. We, we can know what's true. We can, we, what's true can give us the assurance that we need to live for God, even when it's hard. So he gives us five things, and five things that we can know. And it's not a guess. It's not a, I think. It's a... I can know these things. Did you even pick that up as we were reading? The know? Mm -hmm. Doubt comes from many sources. But we can know these things. And it will make all the difference in the world. So here are the five things that we can know. Number one, we can know that we have eternal life. And we see that in verses 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And and if we know 
that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request. We have the request that we asked of him. Some, some churches teach that you really can't know if you have eternal life. You, you are constantly in this danger zone. You might be in today. You might be out tomorrow. You never know. And, and even if you know right now in this moment, when you commit a terrible sin 15 minutes from now, or if you die, are you in or are you out? Maybe that was the sin that pushed you over the edge. Maybe you weren't truly a believer in that moment. Some churches teaches, teaches at you that you can never be sure. But that's not what John teaches, is it? John is writing so that we can know that we surely have eternal life. He's assuring the church in Ephesus that they were right to believe in Christ. He wants them to continue to trust in him despite all the disturbances that were going on that disturbed their church. Listen, I want you to know we're not facing this exact same circumstance, are we? But it's good for us to recalibrate when we're in the middle of of a crisis. Sometimes we wonder, is it all worth it? Every message we get in this world is to live for you. Live for yourself. Live for your joy. Live for your satisfaction. And it takes a lot of effort to keep showing up, to keep denying ourselves, to keep Loving. And John says, says that it is. We, we can know that we have eternal life right now. And doubt comes from all kinds of sources. But our assurance comes from just one place. From the cross of Jesus Christ. And its effects in our lives. Robert Murray Machine got it right a number of years ago. He said this. Learn much of the Lord Jesus For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settle upon you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with heart-ravishing sense of sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there is no room for folly or the world or Satan, or the flesh. Look to Jesus, and you will have all the assurance and all the power that you need in your life. The more you think about him, the more you will see your life change. And you can be assured of this. And here's the second one. We know that God hears and answers our prayers. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the requests that we have asked of him. I don't know if you've ever had one of those kind of cell phone conversations where you were just chatting along with somebody and just telling a really deep and important part of the story and all of a sudden you're realizing, man, it's awfully quiet on the other side. And all of a sudden you, you, you hear on the other side, Paul, Paul, are you there? Paul, are you there? And you realize, I have told five minutes of a story for a person who has gone out of cell phone range. And sometimes I, I feel that way in prayer, don't you? Where you, you are just pleading and pleading and pleading and you're, you're wondering, God, are, do you even hear me? Do, maybe you've missed what, what's going on here, but there seems to be a disconnect because God, I, I have been sharing and sharing and sharing and now I feel like, man, now you're jumping in? Now I hear your voice? We need to be honest and say that we feel like that with God sometimes. And it's okay to say, man, it feels like God just is not listening or responding at all. It feels like we're talking, but we aren't really sure that God is listening or that sometimes it doesn't even feel like God even cares. And John tells us that God is Listening, And we can be assured of that. And that we have requests. And that when we have requests, God will respond to them if it's according to his will. And there's part of me that it, John kind of makes me feel a little nervous right here. Are you sure that we can say that God hears all of our requests? when we pray according to his will and that he answers all of those prayers that are according to his will. Neither John nor Jesus has any problem affirming this section. Yes. God is for you. We don't know why all of our answers aren't prayer, uh, answers, prayers are not answered the way that we think they should. But we never have to doubt that God hears us and that God is favorably inclined to give us exactly what is best for us. Some of you have been praying for certain relationships to be mended and you are praying and praying and praying and praying and it seems like there is a, an expanse of quietness. Anybody feel that? And God is answering your prayer. It might not be in the time or in the way that you want it. But God is answering your prayer. Paul Miller in his book, uh, A Praying Life, says this. Hope begins with the heart of God. As you grasp what the Father's heart is like, how he loves you, then prayer will begin to feel completely natural to you. The first step is understanding the heart of God. And once you start understanding the heart of God, you start understanding how to pray and how God is responding, whether through a yes, a no, or not yet. 
And God is extravagant and he is generous in hearing and answering our prayers. We cannot manipulate God in our prayers. You can keep on coming before him and pray and pray and pray. And you think you can badger God into submission? The answer is no, you can't. But that doesn't negate you praying for these things. The desire, the ultimate desire is, Lord, I want to know your heart. I want to understand what makes your heart beat. I want to understand your timing. I want to understand your will. Number three, we can know that our future is secure. 1 John 15 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I love this. This is reassuring kind of stuff. What does it mean? It's simple. It does not, it's not that we won't ever sin, because friends, that is your daily experience, and that is my daily experience. What it does mean is is super reassuring. It, it gives us so much hope. It is that there is a genuine, genuine, genuine perseverance among those who have genuine faith. And in those who have genuine faith, God protects those. And the evil one, it even goes to the fact that says that the evil one does not and cannot touch you. If you are born of God, then Jesus himself will keep you safe. And he will keep you safe to the end. And the evil one cannot take it away from you. That is good news. I've even heard of, uh, in Muslim countries, uh, that once a person, if a person testifies that they are a believer in Jesus Christ, they will still persecute and even quite possibly martyr that person. But once they are baptized, profess, and have found their identity deeply in Christ, that person is far greater of a threat, but the protection that God gives seems to be otherworldly. Satan says, hmm, that one is mocked. Does it happen all the time? but I've read of testimonies that once a person is found to be baptized, profess their faith that the evil one has a hard time even getting his hands on that person. Number four, we can even know victory in the middle of of the battle. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. D-Day took place on June 6, 1944. The Allies invaded Normandy, right? And they began the liberation of the Western Front of of Europe from all the the Nazis' control. Some 1,000 ships were converging all in one spot. It was the largest armada ever to set sail. And some 200,000 soldiers across the English Channel to France we're already storming the coast of Normandy. 
It was only the beginning of the military buildup that Germany would not be ever able to ever stop. It was only a matter of time before the Allies would win. VE Day took place 11 months later. May 8, 1945. That is when Germany unconditionally surrendered. And World War II was officially over. The difference between D-Day and V-E-Day was just a matter of time. And for this reason, many have said it was on June 6, 1944, that the war was over. But that wasn't the perspective of the soldiers on the ground, was it? They were still dodging bullets and bombs. They were bleeding and wounded, and many were still dying. And there, there were still many harrowing days of the war that were yet to be endured. And there were even some setbacks. And we, my friends, we live in those in-between times, don't we? We live in those times. We, victory is ours. We are from God, but we are still very much in the battle. John reminds us that we can know, even as we struggle, that the victory is ours. Don't let the bombs and the bullets of Satan distract you. The world is under the power of the evil one, but only for a bit longer. You are of God. It's just a matter of time before that complete victory in Jesus is completely yours. And my friends, that, that's even what Advent is all about, right? Advent is we, we are celebrating. We all look for, you know, it's not, it's not about the Black Friday. It, it's not about the shopping. It's not about the Christmas gifts. It is, yeah, believe it or not, kids, it, that's not what it's about, mom and dad. It is about us Jesus coming in and winning victory in a decisive way. But we are also anticipating, and we're not just celebrating his coming the first time, his incarnation. We are anticipating that final VE day, that victory where it is done, unconditionally surrendered. And we can celebrate, we are anticipating, we are in that in-between time and we are longing for, not Christmas trees, we're not longing for presence. We are longing for that day when it is finished. It is done. And we celebrate Christ for eternity. It's just a matter of time, friends. Number five, we can know that the Son of God has come and that He, can, he has given us understanding. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We, we could not have figured out this Christianity thing by ourselves. It's impossible. It's, it's something that we could not have deduced rationally. Oh, well, that, those things make sense. A plus B equals C. Oh, Jesus. No. Someone had to tell us. 
And next week as we begin to celebrate Advent, which points us to the reality that Jesus has come to give us understanding so that we know what is true. That's what Advent is. We're we're preparing our minds and being told again. Because Because of Jesus, we can know all of these truths. That we are his and that Jesus has come to live and die so that we have eternal life. Friends, we are not in some kind of raft held together by duct tape. We we can know what is true. And what's true can give us assurance that we need to live for God even when it is hard. You just don't have to have, you don't just have a check from God. Friends, you have a certified check from God. You have the assurance that you need for this life and for the next as well. So how do we respond to all of this? You don't have to guess. And how this book ends is, for me, I, I just kind of sat in and going, okay, that, that's like anticlimactic, John. Why did, why did you end with that strange verse 21? Because it doesn't feel connected to the rest. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like his last dying breath. Oh, I got one more thing to say before I run out of ink. Why, why, why is this, this little phrase in here? It, for me, it, it was like, I didn't see that coming. That, that doesn't really connect with anything. What? And I keep yourself from idols. Where, where are you going with this? Well, the reality is an idol is a God substitute, Right? An idol can be religious, but an idol can also be a false teaching about God, like some had embraced in Ephesus. Elise Fitzpatrick in her book, Idols of the Heart, writes this. Idols are the loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of of the true God. Let me say that again. And think about what are your loves, thoughts, desires, and longings and expectations. Idols are the loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. They are the things that she says, they are the things that we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. Idols cause us to disregard our heavenly father in regard for what we think we need. Our idols are our loves gone wrong. All those things we love more than we love him. The things we trust for our righteousness or okayness. So in light of what we know, those assurances don't allow anything to take the place of God in your life. That's John's warning to the church in Ephesus. Friends, don't let anything take the place of God in your life. And friends, 
at this time of year, Christmas, Thanksgiving, when we all love family and friends and gifts and shopping and spending money and credit card debt. Don't let anything, anything take the place of God in your life. My little children, protect your heart. Protect your heart. And this is what he says. We can know what's true. And what's true can give us assurance that we need to live for God when it's hard or when the culture tells us otherwise. Friends, do not ever substitute God for anything else. So friends, First John comes to a close. But the book is still open. It's a call for us as a community of faith to say, I need to believe these truths. That Jesus is enough. He's better than my marriage. He's better than my friendships. He's better than my resources. He's better than my church. He's better than you fill in the blank. Jesus is better. And because he is better, we as a community are desiring to grow in holiness. We are desiring to grow in our obedience, in our love, our passion for him. We want to give more of ourselves to the one who is worthy. And as we are doing that, as we are loving him more and growing in our obedience, we are loving each other better. Friends, the gospel does this to us. And the gospel is not something that you should hear once that saves you. It is something that is constantly transforming. So my friends, let's keep pursuing Jesus and spurring one another on to loving Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.